Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined by Michael Rothberg to discuss his book, The Implicated Subject, Beyond Victims and Perpetrators, and the big issues that it raises about how we understand violence, both in history and in our own present day and our place within it. Michael Rothberg is a professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA, and he holds the 1939 Society Samuel Goetz Chair in Holocaust Studies there. The Implicated Subject is his most recent book, and he's also the author of Multidirectional Memory, Remembering the Holocaust in the Age of Decolonization, which was published in 2009, and Traumatic Realism, The Demands of Holocaust Representation, which was published in 2000. The Implicated Subject is a really important book because it raises the fundamental challenge that no one is really innocent when it comes to historical injustices, even those of us who were born long after the events took place. As he writes, when we think about injustice, there are not just perpetrators and victims, but many people are also implicated as people who enable systemic violence and oppression or benefit in some fashion, even without thinking about it, or who bear responsibility for the legacies of historical injustice. It's an important term to add to our vocabulary to think about the history of the implicated subject, of those people who have agency over their lives, not just as passive bystanders, but as subjects, and are implicated in the history of violence and injustice, as well as systems of oppression in our own day. And it's a call for reflection and for action to fight oppression, injustice, and inequality when we think about our own place within it. I'm so glad to be able to discuss this with Michael because I think that he offers an important conceptual framework and a challenge to all of us as we think about history, about memory, and about our own lives, especially right now. If you check out the show notes, I've also linked to an excerpt to the introduction from the book, and I hope that you'll check it out. I should also mention that this will be the final podcast episode of the year. We'll be back in the fall with new conversations about why Jewish history matters. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation where the book offers a starting point for these big pressing issues, both intellectually, politically, and otherwise, about the history of violence the meaning of the Holocaust and Holocaust memory, and more. Thanks for listening. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading the book. It's, I think, a really important one. Obviously, as we'll get into today, very relevant to a lot of things that are going on right now. And so I want to start by thinking about how you open the book, actually, because in the introduction, you start by talking about what you say is a kind of a vocabulary deficiency. Do you maybe want to start us off by telling us what you mean by that and how it relates to this 
big picture issue about how is it that we talk about injustice and oppression and all these things? Sure. The interest that I have in the book is to provide a new way of thinking about violence and exploitation. And I'm interested in historical violence, violent events of the past. I'm interested in structures of violence. And I'm also interested in historical legacies of violence and how we can take responsibility for them. And as I started thinking about uh, these issues, as I have been for a long time, it, it struck me that we are, in fact, missing some uh, central categories that would help us to understand these different forms of violence and their legacies. I'm coming out of Holocaust studies first, as you know, and in Holocaust studies, we've had a kind of uh, triumvirate of subjects that we talk about, victims, perpetrators, and bystanders. And for the most part, work has focused on the first two, on victims and perpetrators, with relatively little attention to bystanders, so that's increased somewhat in recent years. I think that those categories are, of course, necessary, but they're insufficient. And in particular, the category of the bystander, I, can, I consider a weak category. And my notion of the implicated subject is probably, first of all, meant as a replacement for the notion of the bystander, which strikes me as a very passive concept, which doesn't really clarify at all the role that most people play in various scenarios of violence, both historical and contemporary. So what I'm trying to theorize here is how people participate in, enable, inherit different forms of violence without themselves necessarily being direct participants, without themselves being perpetrators. So what I'm trying to do especially is supplement the notion of perpetrator with the notion of the implicated subject and ask how it is that really large categories of people end up participating in, in forms of violence without ever seeing themselves as perpetrators, without ever being indictable as perpetrators in a court of law of whatever sort, and yet their role is so essential in, in what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what's going on here is this question of agency, a really big element. This is, I think, why you're using the word subject in particular, in as much as that you're thinking in a grammatical frame about the people who are active agents, the subject of the sentence, as opposed to the object so to speak. And I think that part of the problem, as you said, with this division between victim, perpetrator, and bystander is, again, as you said, that the bystanders are often seen as passive, unacting. And of course, there are people who now talk about you know, replacing the idea of bystanders with upstanders. There are all sorts of ways of trying to adjust the language that we used to talk about this to say how we can be, for instance, more active in our own lives in terms of fighting oppression or standing up against racism or anything. And I think that part of what you're doing here is you're inserting yourself into this conversation about how is it that we understand violence in a really important way. Obviously, I'm not the first person or the only person to raise some of these sorts of issues. And I do try to draw on other people and other categories that are being used in this discussion. But I think you're right to draw attention to that question of agency, because I think part of the problem is in Holocaust studies, but I think also beyond Holocaust studies, and certainly in, let's say, more mainstream and popular discussions, it's very easy to focus on the agency of overt perpetrators, right? It's very easy to focus on 
the SS, the Wehrmacht, even the police officer killing uh, people in the streets to allude to some of the contemporary issues that we'll probably talk about. It's easy to focus on those figures of violence, those very overt perpetrators. But what I'm really interested in is what enables those perpetrators to perform the acts of violence that they perform. And my hypothesis, my argument is really ultimately that those overt acts of perpetration really can only take place when they are backed up by a much larger core of implicated subjects who in indirect ways are making those forms of violence possible. If you think about the Holocaust for a moment, and certainly there has been discussion of this, but again, I think we've lacked the kind of right category to describe some of these people. Think not of the people who are shooting Jews in the forests, like you would see in Christopher Browning's work or what have you. Think not of the Nazi hierarchy, the prison guards, et cetera, et cetera. Think of the, think of the so-called desk murders. Think of the people who are organizing the trains, right, that are taking the victims to the camps. All those kind of enabling figures who we couldn't necessarily say are perpetrators, who we could not try in a court of law, and yet who possess, I would say, a really significant form of political responsibility for what has happened, and moral responsibility certainly as well, who, who make possible what happens on the front lines of perpetration but who themselves frequently remain behind the scenes. I mean, I think this speaks to some of the other people who that you reference and you think about in the book. For instance, you spend some time engaging with the work of Sam Moyne, thinking about shifts in how we talk about human rights. And I guess part of the question here is that, that you're in a much bigger conversation, both about questions of human rights and the history of violence as you said, historical and contemporary, and also about the victim-perpetrator dichotomy, or, or rather the victim-perpetrator-bystander division. You talk also a lot about Primo Levi, referencing and thinking about the idea of the gray zone and so on. I mean, so as you look at the broader landscape of this ongoing you know, intellectual, cultural, very much political conversation about the nature of violence, what are you contributing to this conversation and why do you think that it's so important that we engage with this question of implication today? Well, I think why it's important is because it's, a, it's really a driving force of much of what we see going on around us in terms of events that are unfolding as we speak, but also in terms of how we grapple with the violent histories of the past whose legacies are still with us and which are still in some ways shaping what we what we think, what we do, how we live in the present. If you think of the United States, I'm thinking about the legacies of slavery. I'm thinking about the legacies of genocide that are both sort of foundational for the United States. And how we think about our relationship to those events is important. And it's important primarily because it it shapes what is happening today and continues to shape what is happening today. You've mentioned various thinkers who are important to me I think Levy is a good place to start in a way because his notion of the gray zone is sort of the first thing that one thinks about coming out of Holocaust studies when you think about getting beyond the victim-perpetrator binary. Because in his essay, The Gray Zone, a really important essay and well-known essay, that's precisely what Levy is trying to do. He says to us, look, we have this very stereotypical 
image of the Holocaust as a polarized conflict between innocent victims and evil perpetrators. And of course, on one level, that's true. The victims were innocent. The perpetrators were, were evil. But in fact, when you look at uh, even the world of the camps, uh, what you see is that there's a much more complicated scenario, the much more complicated things going on, and that you simply cannot hold on to this uh, simplistic binary view, right? He says that the camp world was not just divided into two, but it was crisscrossed with lots of different kinds of divisions and hierarchies. And what he's interested in there in particular, I think, is complicating the notion of the passive innocent victim. And what he's saying is that we have to look at the way that systems of domination solicit the participation of those they are victimizing. That's a really important insight. And if you can talk about that in the world of the camps, the Nazi camps, it seems to me you can certainly talk about that in other situations as well. And, and people have picked up on his idea and applied it to other contexts for sure. And Levy himself suggests that that is possible in his essay, though it's obviously a, a tricky thing to move from the camps to, let's say, more ordinary forms of oppression and domination. So that's a really important move, but, and I take inspiration from it, but it's also a little bit different from what I'm trying to do in the book. Because while Levy is interested in the way that victims, again, are brought into a kind of complicity with the perpetrators, what I'm interested in is those figures who are actually already more or less aligned with the perpetrators without being themselves perpetrators. So to stick with this example of Nazi Germany just for the moment, and again, I, I think it applies more broadly, I'm talking again not about those who are actively involved in the genocide of Jews or the murder of the various other groups that the Nazis victimized. I'm interested in the more ordinary Germans and the way their implicit support of the project actually made the project possible. So the people, again, who were looking the other way as their neighbors were taken away, who were working in various administrative positions, who were running the factories that were exploiting slave labor, and especially the people who were benefiting from the products that were produced in those factories, right? You bring into view, when you start to think of the implicated subject instead of just victims and perpetrators, you start to bring into view a much larger part of the population, which usually eludes our analysis, which usually doesn't play a role in the way we narrate these kinds of events, and yet I'm arguing is still essential to what is happening there. So I take inspiration from Levy in complicating these sort of simplistic, moralistic, binary frameworks that we usually apply to scenarios of violence, especially extreme violence. But I'm interested, instead of looking at the way that victims play a role in their own victimization, I'm interested in the way that members of a dominant society who are not themselves perpetrators come to support and participate in indirect ways in that perpetration. Yeah, I mean, I think this is so important for us to think about and to really engage with what's going on here. Because I think, again, thinking about Levy, for instance, one can think about and ask, to what extent did Jewish prisoners in the concentration camps, for instance, who, as he's arguing, kind of some of them fall into this gray zone, they still don't have agency in terms of their lives. They're still a prisoner in the camp. The question of agency is so important because I think that what you're suggesting here is that people have choices 
and people are actively doing things even if they aren't thinking about them or benefiting from things even if they aren't actively thinking about it in ways that support regimes of violence in various forms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think choice is interesting. I mean, I think obviously once we leave the realm of the camps, as I think that we need to in thinking about these issues, then of course we're in a realm where people have various degrees of agency, of choice, that prisoners in the camps would not. I mean, Levy wanted to insist, I think, in the gray zone that even in that extreme zone of exception, there were still certain kinds of you know choices and, that people were making and, and differences in the way that people behaved. And yet that was so obviously overdetermined and structured by the system that the perpetrators had set up, right? But when we leave the camps, obviously we're in a realm uh, where we have a great deal more freedom. But I want to insist that, and you know, this is also I think what you're saying, that not all of those choices are actually conscious choices, or at least the most important choices are not necessarily conscious choices. In other words, for me, it's not important, or it's not essential rather, that implicated subjects are conscious of their implication. I think most of the things that we do that contribute to the various forms of inequality, exploitation, injustice, violence that are taking place, we do without necessarily being aware of it. So that is to say also that part of the project of the book is to make us more aware of the way that we are playing those kinds of roles without necessarily being conscious of it. And so questions of ignorance, of disavowal, various forms of non-knowledge, I think, actually become very important because the easier it is for us to ignore what we actually are doing and to disavow it or simply not be aware of it, the easier it is for us to participate in these various kinds of scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think to go back to some of what you were touching on just a couple of minutes ago, if we think about our own lives you know, in the U.S. and the history of the U.S., whether we're talking about settler colonialism, the settling of the country and the continent, the history of uh, slavery, genocide against Native Americans, so on and so forth, there are questions of like how people who were not directly involved in these things are implicated in that time period. And then also about how people since then, right, including ourselves, stand to benefit from those horrific historical acts. Part of what you're essentially arguing here is that nobody is, and I'll just borrow the words from the back cover of the book, which are just great. You say um, that when it comes to historical violence and contemporary inequality, none of us are completely innocent. Uh, and I, I think that a big part of what you're doing here is you are engaging with this question of not just what do we do in times of violence and injustice, but how do we engage with those things from the past? Uh, and I think that that's just a very big question to which there's not a lot of very good answers to these things, but you've offered us a really interesting approach. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, I think that gets at definitely one of what I see as the key aspects of the book, which is this notion of what I call diachronic implication. That is our implication in histories of violence that we may not have lived through ourselves, did not participate in because we weren't even alive at the time. And so that's another example where, yeah, where the question really of choice or conscious participation is really fully out of the picture because we're talking about things that unfolded before our time, but crucially, whose legacies live on. And that's really the, the key point. I'll say that, yes, 
what I'm aiming for in the book is indeed a broad kind of account, right? So my notion of implication and the implicated subject, these are broad, broad categories that are in some ways offered as umbrella categories under which different kinds of implication can be found, and that they do indeed, let's say, implicate very, very large groups of people and probably all of us in some way or other. I think what's important, though, is once you make that kind of broad claim, what really matters is the analysis that follows from it. And that has to be done in very specific circumstances. So it may be true that in some ways we are all implicated in global capitalism, but we are certainly not all equally implicated in global capitalism. And those differences really matter. And so the work of the book, I hope, and I think the work of the category, as, as I hope it can be used by others, has to also be a work of differentiation and specification, right? How does this play out in particular histories, in particular situations? But to, to take that larger question of how we think about our implication in historical violence, which again, as Americans, is certainly a really important one, but it goes for other countries as well, of course. I think one of the most important distinctions, and I take it from Hannah Arendt, who also was in dialogue with her friend, the philosopher Karl Jaspers, and that is the distinction between guilt and responsibility. I think when we think about historical violence, we have to make a very fundamental distinction, which is to say, we who have inherited the legacies of, let's say, genocide and slavery in North America, we are not guilty of those crimes that took place before we were born, maybe before some of our families even moved to this continent, right? We are not guilty of those crimes. And yet, by virtue of benefiting from them, from being beneficiaries, we bear a kind of responsibility. And that is what I'm interested in thinking about in the book. And Jaspers, in fact, was one of the first inspirations for thinking about this issue. So Jaspers wrote a really important book called Die Schuldfrage, The Question of German Guilt, published right after the war uh, in Germany, right, where he was addressing the German public and trying to get them to understand what kind of responsibilities they had for the Nazi regime and for what had just happened, right, in, in Nazi Germany, including the Holocaust. And he was responding to his fellow citizens' rejection of the Nuremberg trials and the rejection of ascriptions of collective guilt to the German people. And his argument was, in fact, that no, the German people are not collectively guilty, but in the terms that I would want to use, they may well be collectively responsible. And so he was working with the word guilt, and he divided guilt into four different categories. And it's particularly the first two that are really important to me. He distinguishes between criminal guilt and what he calls political guilt. Criminal guilt is always individual, right? And it's always based on what an individual has actually done. So this is the realm of perpetrators, right? Perpetrators are ones who are criminally guilty in Jasper's terms, who bear individual responsibility for their participation in crimes, crimes against humanity or whatever kind. Political responsibility, on the other hand, accrues to those who are members of a particular polis, or a particular political collective, in other words, citizens. So as citizens of Germany, Germans bore a political responsibility uh, for what had just happened in Nazi Germany, even if most of them were not perpetrators and were therefore not criminally guilty. For those who are indicted for crimes, you bring them to trial, you try them, you punish them in whatever form seems right. For those who are political responsibility, then how does one respond to that? 
And for Jaspers, it was some form of reparations that was appropriate. And I think that's also really useful for us in thinking about it. Now, I prefer to shift from the notion of political guilt to the one of political responsibility, because I think by repeating the word guilty actually clouds the issue a little bit. So Jaspers, though, was writing right after the war. So when he was thinking about these issues of criminal guilt, of political guilt, of what he called moral guilt and metaphysical guilt, he was really thinking in the very immediate terms of the present. And he couldn't yet anticipate, it seems to me, that these very questions would also continue to be very live, both in Germany and in other contexts. So what I'm interested in, especially, is in thinking about how Jaspers's notion of political responsibility plays out over time, right, historically, especially over generations, right? What happens when the next generation of Germans is born? What is their relationship to the Nazi past? What is their relationship to the Holocaust? This has, of course, been a huge topic of debate and discussion within Germany and around the world. And this is where I think the category of implicated subject becomes really useful for people to figure out a way of processing their relationship to those events and say, no, I'm not a perpetrator. I'm not guilty of the Holocaust, as Germans have said ever since the end of the Second World War, especially the younger generations. And I would say, that's absolutely right. You're not a perpetrator. You're not criminally guilty, but you are an implicated subject. You are politically responsible. And I would say the same thing about, about myself, right? I am not guilty of the crime of slavery. I'm not guilty of the genocide of indigenous people in the Americas, but I'm certainly an implicated subject. I'm certainly politically responsible by virtue of my position in the present. Yeah, I mean, I think that the spectrum between guilt and responsibility is a really, really critical thing for us to unpack and think about, because, of course, not everybody is actually guilty for something that happened in the past. Certainly things that, that we individually were not even potentially alive for, or perhaps our ancestors came to this country after those things took place, but we still perhaps have benefited from them in some way, or at least we bear some sort of responsibility for what took place, even if we or our ancestors were not directly involved. And I'll add on to that, that I think that that part of what's really just so fascinating, and you know, there's just so much that we can peel away here in terms of the different layers, is that it seems to me that this set of issues is so clearly and closely related to your thinking about what you've called multi-directional memory. There you're talking about uh, a shift from a competitive approach to memory, where different groups say, this is my issue pretty much exclusively to one of these things where memory can be shared. The example that you talk about in the book is the question of the Warsaw Ghetto and the, the extent to which the image of Warsaw has been viewed exclusively as Jewish by many people, but it's also being used by others. And I think that part of where we see this is how the shift away from competitive, exclusive approaches to questions of memory relates to also this question of exclusive approaches to guilt. Instead of saying that this group of people or that person is exclusively guilty of such a crime, but actually the guilt is spread around or the responsibility is spread around to multiple people or multiple groups. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms, but, but that's a really interesting suggestion. And yes, I think that my thinking in the implicated subject certainly comes out of my previous book, Multidirectional Memory. And I wouldn't say it's quite a sequel to it, but it does continue to try to think through some of those same issues that I was thinking in the previous book. And I think some aspects of the way I approach the question of memory are, of course, still very active in the way I approach questions of responsibility in this book. 
in some ways, that's the sort of larger categorical shift from the earlier book, Multidirectional Memory, to the new book, The Implicated Subject, is a switch from memory being at the core to questions of historical and political responsibility being at the core. But in some ways, yeah, there's still a multidirectional sensibility, let's say, that that is active in the new book. I would say, first of all, in thinking about the relationship, the implicated subject came out of multidirectional memory when I started to think about the different kinds of connections that exist between different histories and different memories. So in other words, multidirectional memory was an argument about the way that different memory traditions, which seem to be autonomous, are actually emerging in dialogue with each other. So let's say Black and Jewish memories of violence and exclusion are in fact echoing each other, appropriating elements from each other, emerging in this kind of dialogic way. So that one can't really talk about owning the memory of a particular event or history or form of memory, right? But, but rather, these are kind of shared resources that get rearticulated by different groups. The Warsaw Ghetto example is one of them, and we can talk more about that. And in that book, then, most of the connections I was interested in were connections between different histories of victimization, right? So how do Blacks and Jews, for example, remember their histories of suffering in relationship to each other? thinking about each group as a victim group, essentially, so that the connections in multidirectional memory mostly pass through the experience of victims. What I started to realize, though, was that this was not the only way that histories are linked, and that sometimes these kinds of multidirectional links emerge precisely from a grasp of implication. And here I was inspired initially by two figures, the great German writer Vege Zebald and the South African Jewish artist William Kentridge. And the first essay I wrote that really tried to, to grapple with this notion of the implicated subject was an essay precisely on Zebald and Kentridge. The Kentridge material, uh, much expanded and transformed, made it into the book that Zebald did not. And so, sort of, is part of this standalone essay. And I was interested in the way that Zebald, as a non-Jewish German growing up after the Holocaust, was probably the most multidirectional writer I could think of, right? Making all sorts of, of links across the globe, especially between Nazi violence and, let's say, colonial violence, but really the violence of modernity in an even broader sense. And what was interesting to me was that he was making those kinds of multidirectional connections not from the position of the victim, but precisely from the position of the implicated subject, right? In other words, his multidirectional memory was a way of grappling with his implication as a non-Jewish German growing up in the post-war period. That sort of started me thinking about the fact that we needed this other category of implicated subject to understand those kinds of multidirectional connections that one found in, in the figure like Zabald. Kentridge was a slightly different one, and I think also interesting, and that ends up being very important to the book as well. What I ended up in the book calling complex implication is what I derived from the work of Kentridge and from others as well. What that is, is a recognition that the legacies we inherit are often very contradictory, right? So Kentridge's work is very much focused on contemporary South Africa 
And especially during the 90s, he did a series of animated films about South Africa's transition from apartheid to representative democracy. What was really fascinating to me was within that film series, you started to get these kind of echoes of the Holocaust as well. And so I was trying to figure out what was going on there. What, what, what was the connection between apartheid and the Holocaust? And it turns out to be a really complicated one in his work. But what it led me to in terms of a kind of takeaway is this notion of complex implication, which is to say that we can inherit histories of victimization, as I think we do as Jews, but that doesn't prevent us from being implicated in other forms of violence, both historical and contemporary, things that are unfolding in the present. So Kentridge was trying to understand what it means to be white and Jewish in South Africa, to be implicated in apartheid, categorized as white, a beneficiary of that racist system, and at the same time have these historical links to Jewish suffering. And how do you think about those two things together? One of the things that we've kind of been scratching at the surface of, but I'm hoping that we can really dive into is what we take away from this set of ideas about implication. You've thrown out a whole range of writers, thinkers, artists that help to provide us with a toolkit for thinking about questions of violence. And so in conversation with so many other people within the book and also outside of it as well, how do you think that this conceptual framework can contribute to our thinking about contemporary issues? And I say this particularly while we're recording this right now in June, this is a moment when people are protesting all over the country. So how do you think that your ideas that you've been developing and the idea of implication in particular, how do they contribute to a conversation that we perhaps should be having you know, as a country as a whole? I would say that the issues that I address, both in multidirectional memory and the implicated subject, are issues that are playing out right now in the United States and around the world. The questions about historical memory, about comparisons between the present and the past, questions of political violence, of police violence, all of these things are very much live and they're, they're issues that I try to address in the books. I don't believe that I have all of the answers to these questions and I certainly don't have all the answers to our current situation, which is changing so rapidly and producing such confusion, I think, in, in many of us. The implicated subject does begin with the example of the killing of Trayvon Martin. And so we are in a moment that is indeed very similar to that and now really grows out of that moment and the moment around the killing of Trayvon Martin. The killing of Trayvon Martin is one of the things that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. And the Black Lives Matter movement is obviously only becoming more important with every passing day. And what I tried to do in the book is to say, yes, the Black Lives Matter movement is probably the most important social movement that has arisen in the last few years. How can we think about that for people who are what I call implicated subjects, right? In other words, how do white people, how do people who are in fact benefiting from the structural racism that Black Lives Matter is making visible how do we think about our position in relationship to this movement, in relationship to the violence that it's responding to? How do we think about our tasks for the present? And I focus in particular on a kind of social media campaign that arose after the acquittal of George Zimmerman 
which declared, I am not Trayvon Martin. And it was kind of a website that became a Tumblr site. And it collected various testimonies of people who said, I am not Trayvon Martin. I am rather, let's say, a beneficiary of white supremacy. I am someone who has not had to confront the kinds of issues that African-American youth have. And I found this a really interesting strategy, right, to try to craft a political position not based on identification, but in some ways on what I call non-identification. In other words, to recognize the differences, the divisions between those who are victimized by structural racism and those who are beneficiaries of it, and to think about solidarity outside the framework of identification. I think that was what I really found valuable there. Now, that was not a political movement, ultimately. It was a relatively short-term, as I say, social media phenomena, but it helped me to think through this question of solidarity in relationship to implication. And it made me think that we need ways of thinking about solidarity that that go outside of questions of identification, especially identifications with victims. And that led to what I call the notion of long-distance solidarity, or also in, in my work on the memory of the Warsaw Ghetto, differentiated solidarity, which is to say solidarity that recognizes precisely the distances and differences between different groups, right? That we are implicated in these events in very different ways. And it doesn't help to collapse those kinds of distinctions when we offer solidarity. And I do think that's very relevant to what's going on now in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And in some ways, again, I can't tell you how people who are participating in the protests today are thinking about their participation. But a couple of things that I've noticed are that these are, in fact, very, very diverse, multiracial protests that are taking place. And yet they're being led, appropriately so, I think, by Black Lives Matter's activists. And so a lot of white people are participating, and I have to see them as participating in some ways because of their recognition that they are implicated subjects, right? That this is uh, something that they are involved in, that they are part of, even if, again, they are neither the perpetrators of some of these acts of violence, whether vigilante violence or police violence, nor are they certainly the victims of those forms of violence, if we're talking about white Americans. And yet they are part of the society that allows these things to happen. And they're trying to reject that, that complicity, that implication, that participation. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that part of what is going on here in the world at large is that we're living in a complicated world. And a lot of times I think people need the words to describe what's happening around them or to give form. As you said, we have a vocabulary deficiency. And I think this applies to a lot of issues and not just to uh, the current protests or police violence or whatever. I think that ultimately part of what is important here is the way in which this conceptual framework can not just help us to understand it, but also help us to talk about these issues. The fact that uh, the two of us as white men, right, you know, talking right now on the podcast are implicated in this whole set of issues, even if we are not ourselves directly involved in the events themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think what scholarly work can do at its best, and I don't exaggerate the importance of it, 
is precisely to provide vocabulary and conceptual frameworks. And we need multiple ones, right? I'm, I'm not trying to say that, that I have, again, all the answers, or I think that we should need to think everything through the categories that I have come up with. But if they can help us to illuminate what's going on and our own positions in relationship to what's going on, obviously, I would think that's a good thing. And so I don't think that we are implicated subjects is going to be a political rallying cry. And yet, I think recognizing ourselves as implicated and as implicated subjects at its best could both lead to a certain kind of modesty, right, on the part of people who are not the frontline victims of the kinds of violence that are being protested, a kind of modesty, but also, I hope, a kind of inspiration for being part of it, right, for wanting to express solidarity, but not solidarity that appropriates or displaces the position of victims who are on the front lines of of this experience. Some people might look at this set of issues and say, okay, this is an important approach. This is an important way of thinking about it. But why are we starting with the case of Jewish history in the case of the Holocaust as a starting point for that conversation? And of course, in the book itself, as you mentioned, you actually do begin by talking about the killing of, of Trayvon Martin. So you're not actually starting with the Holocaust, chronologically speaking, in terms of how the book progresses. But in a lot of ways, and this, of course, I think partially just relates to the fact that, you know, you're a scholar of the history of the Holocaust and of Holocaust memory. And so that's just where you're coming from. But ultimately, why is it that we should care about Jewish history, the history of violence against Jews, of persecution, the history of the Holocaust, in terms of understanding contemporary conflicts and oppressions? Well, I would, I would argue strongly that we should not be thinking of Jewish history or Jewish experiences as exceptional, right? And as somehow uniquely positioned to help us understand the world in which we live. That said, I think it still, of course, can be a resource for understanding the world in which we live. And as scholars in Jewish studies or in Holocaust studies, of course, I think we have a responsibility to start where we are and to try to think through the issues in those terms. So I do think that Jewish histories, Jewish histories, let's say in the plural, can be illuminating for the present. I don't think they should necessarily be privileged. And so a lot of my work, especially since multidirectional memory, but I think you can see some of it in traumatic realism as well, especially in the conclusion to that book, which was my first book, has been about, I would say, deprovincializing Holocaust studies. And, and therefore Jewish studies more broadly, of seeing how we can put our expertise in Jewish studies or Holocaust studies into dialogue with expertise coming out of other fields. For example, in multidirectional memory, I wanted to, as the subtitle of the book puts it, how do we remember the Holocaust in the age of decolonization? More traditional scholars in Holocaust studies would reject that framework right from the start. What could the Holocaust possibly have to do with the history of colonialism and decolonization or the history of slavery? And so my argument is, if we want Jewish studies to be relevant, if we want Jewish histories to be relevant, we have to be able to think them comparative and relationally in dialogue with other histories, other experiences. If we're situated in the United States, I think there's a kind of ethical but also intellectual imperative to think those in relationship to the histories of African Americans and Native Americans, of other immigrant groups. And so I think Jewish studies at its best is going to be 
in a kind of open dialogue with other traditions. It doesn't mean giving up on what we do. It doesn't mean collapsing Jewishness into these other experiences at all, but it also doesn't mean separating it out into its own unique field. It's precisely in that, I'd say, kind of field of tension between extreme particularity and extreme equation of different histories that I think we need to locate ourselves. And for me, that's what the work of multidirectional memory is. And in some ways, that is also what the work of thinking through implication is, thinking about those intermediate spaces. I think that part of this also, as you said, it's a question of where people are coming from and also asking what are the tools that we have at our disposal in terms of engaging with these issues? We come with a particular toolkit that we have to to analyze issues and to think about all sorts of questions, and we have to work with what we have at our disposal. That's one thing, but it's also a question of audience, where I think um, that part of what's interesting here is, I know that as an academic book, this is not really geared specifically at an audience of American Jews in particular, but I think that this history that you've written about, this set of issues about the implicated subject, has a lot to add to the conversation about the place of American Jews in all of this in particular. I think that in a way, the question of Jewish history allows us to bring the topic to the American Jewish community as a whole, or just to groups of American Jews. And as we think about how is it that American Jews are implicated in systemic violence and historic racism that may have taken place even before the vast majority of Jews even got to the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's really important to me. And when I talk about the book in public, I've been saying, this is my most autobiographical book. And I don't write in an autobiographical mode. I don't speak in my books generally in personal terms. But this book really grew out of certain autobiographical experiences. And in some ways, yeah, for me, this is where Jewish history really is essential in my own thinking. It grew out of my own experiences as a Jewish American growing up, in a context of racism, right, in which I was a beneficiary. I was, I was white. And it was in particular, I remember very clearly these conversations I had shortly after college with other Jews about our responsibility vis-a-vis slavery especially. And I, but I think also genocide of Native Americans is also relevant there. And people saying to me, what do I have to do with slavery? My family immigrated long after slavery was over. And it was clear to me that this was not, a, was not an adequate response to uh, the question of racism in America and the legacies of slavery. But I didn't really feel I had the vocabulary at that time for describing the form of responsibility that I thought was active there, the form of kind of indirect responsibility, not guilt, right, but historical responsibility that was at play. And so in some ways, writing this book was about trying to find a framework for these arguments that I was involved in decades ago about what our position is as white Jews in the United States in the aftermath of slavery and genocide. So yeah, I think that's a really important dimension of the book is it's about trying to understand myself and those of others in my position in relationship to these histories of violence, that it would be easy or it is easy for some people to disavow. That's not my history. I'm not part of that. I'm not involved in that. And to try to build a kind of intellectual argument for why, well, in fact, you are, but you are implicated in that you are an implicated subject and you bear a certain kind of responsibility, just like 
young Germans today bear a certain kind of responsibility for the Holocaust, even if we would never want to say that they are guilty of that. Right. And here I kind of want to shift gears and talk about a separate set of issues where I think that the question of the implicated subject and this question of comparison and this question of to what extent we have or do not have the language to talk about contemporary issues of, of violence and oppression really comes to the fore, which is a recent controversy surrounding the figure of Achille Mbembe. And really, this is tied in with so many of the things that you're engaged with. And you also have written about this recently as well, about the question of comparison with the Holocaust, the question of exclusivity of memory, the question of to what extent different individuals and different groups are implicated uh, in different things. Do you maybe want to get us started off there by briefly explaining a bit about what's been going on there? And then I want to think also about how these ideas about implication and these ideas about memory, just to give another example of thinking about how these ideas actually come into play in the real world, so to speak. Sure. So this is a case involving Achille Mbembe, who is probably the most prominent African intellectual working today. He's a historian and a philosopher. He's from Cameroon originally, but has been based in South Africa for quite some time. And this uh, controversy began when calls arose from German politicians and media figures to disinvite him from a cultural festival, the Ruhr Triennial, which was supposed to take place in, in Germany this spring. Now, the event itself was actually canceled because of the coronavirus and everything that followed from that. But nevertheless, a somewhat conservative German politician named Lorenz Deutsch wrote an open letter accusing Mbembe essentially of anti-Semitism and Holocaust relativization. The evidence he took from a couple of Mbembe's writings and from his alleged association with the BDS movement. What interested me especially were the passages that Deutsch singled out from one of Mbembe's essays, The Society of Enmity. And Deutsch's accusations were then picked up by Felix Klein, who is the German Commissioner for Jewish Life and the Fight Against Anti-Semitism, which is a recently instituted federal position in Germany. They had to do with this nexus of essentially the Holocaust, Israeli occupation, and apartheid. And the accusation was that Mbembe had essentially equated all of these things, uh, that the Israeli occupation was similar to the Holocaust and that Israeli occupation was similar to apartheid. Now, if you actually read his essays and his work, you see that Mbembe has a much more differentiated position, that he's not actually equating these things at all. But in Germany, even bringing these together, let's say in the same sentence, in the same conceptual framework, in the same essay, is to commit a kind of fundamental sin, which is inexcusable and which leads immediately to charges of anti-Semitism. So even to think about what Israeli occupation might have to do with South African apartheid is already to declare yourself an anti-Semite, according to the German logic, despite the fact that many Jews and even many Israelis are making the same kinds of uh, connections. And I'm not making a, an empirical claim here on whether occupation and apartheid really are the same, but a lot of people are, right? A lot of people are, and, and there are some reasons for that. 
And again, Mbembe was not making any kind of equation, but I would say, yeah, you could say maybe he was comparing, or in any case, juxtaposing might even be a better way to talk about it. So that's the background to, to the situation. And I felt it was important to speak out about this because I have been noticing, and I'm not alone, in the last few years, the charges of anti-Semitism and Holocaust relativization are really being weaponized in Germany. To censor is too strong a word, but to try to disable critiques of Israel, especially. There have been various high-profile things that have happened, especially around the Jewish Museum Berlin, where the director was forced to resign over issues that were related to this. The woman who was uh, directing the Academy of the Jewish Museum Berlin, which was a wing of the museum that was dedicated to research and to public dialogue, was also subject to vicious attacks because of her alleged association with BDS supporters and anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera. Her project as director of the Academy was precisely to stage uh, Jewish-Muslim dialogue and had been really successful in in doing that and and had created really important, interesting programming and then found herself precisely a victim of these kinds of allegations. And to be sure, there is sometimes anti-Semitism that creeps into critiques of Israel. No one would deny that. I'm certainly not denying that. But in all of these high-profile cases that I have seen in Germany in recent times, That simply isn't the case. I just don't believe Mbembe is an anti-Semite. I don't believe that the director of the Jewish Museum, who's a scholar of Jewish studies, was an anti-Semite. I don't believe that the director of the museum's academy staging these great dialogues about Judaism and Islam, about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, was an anti-Semite. And so something is wrong right here, I think. Something, there's something going on in the discourse that, that has to be addressed. And so that's what I've tried to intervene in. Yeah, I mean, I think like a big part of what's going on here is this debate about Holocaust comparison and the extent to which one can or cannot or should or should not compare various contemporary developments with the Holocaust, whether we're talking about the occupation of the Palestinians or whether we're talking about detention centers or if you want to call them concentration camps, as some people have on the southern border of the U.S. Last year, there was a huge brouhaha surrounding how some people very prominently use the term concentration camp to refer to the U.S.'s treatment of migrants uh, and immigrants. I think that what's at stake here is really this question of comparison. Uh, And that goes back in some ways to language, which is, do we have the language to describe events that are taking place around us? And the way in which the Holocaust is a useful tool in terms of making these comparisons sometimes and how it is often seen as inappropriate by some people. It's fascinating the degree to which questions of comparison have become central political debates of our time. And we can see that in different contexts. We certainly see that in the Mbembe case. We see that in the controversy around the detention camps for migrants and refugees at the U.S. border. We see that in discussions of Trump and the Trump regime in relationship to historical fascism. Right. So it really is everywhere. It really has become a central it has become a central debate and with real stakes, it seems to me. I guess I would say up front that there are good comparisons and there are bad comparisons. Not all comparisons are good. Some I think we have to say are are mistaken or not productive. 
But what I would say, what I have argued, is that we also can't not compare. I think it's a fundamental human cognitive operation by which we make sense of the world in which we live. I do think that comparison is unavoidable in the way we address and think about our world. And this is similar to the argument that I made in multidirectional memory, where I say that memory is structurally multidirectional. That is to say that memory is always bringing together different moments in time, different places, different histories. And so that comparative dimension of memory is inevitable. It's always there. Again, it doesn't mean that all of those comparisons are good, that we want to support them, so to speak, but it's, it's also something that we can't avoid. So we need, we need a kind of ethics of comparison. We need to find ways to think in complicated fashion about the kinds of links that we perceive and that people are articulating. In Germany, just to stick with the Mbembe case for one more moment at least, this is such a charged issue because the uniqueness of the Holocaust has become, I would argue, a foundational cornerstone of official German identity. That is to say, taking responsibility for the Holocaust as a unique evil has become fundamental to the way that Germans, at least in an official sense, public sense, think of themselves. In the private sphere, I think it's completely different. But in terms of public discourses, official discourses, this is where we are. Now, Germany is often taken as a model of how a society should come to terms with its own crimes. And I think there's a lot of good reason for that. I think what has happened in Germany is, in fact, quite impressive in many ways. But there are a couple of things that we have to add to that discussion. One is that it took decades for that to take place. Immediate post-war Germany was not a place where Holocaust memory was prominent, where taking responsibility for the Nazi past was a prominent part of anybody's way of thinking. This really emerged in the 80s and the 90s and kind of culminated in 2005 with the opening of the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe in Berlin, right? This enormous Holocaust memorial in the nation's capital. It's an impressive memorial, whatever one thinks about it. So it's a somewhat late coming kind of identity that has emerged, this, this German model of taking responsibility for the past. That's one thing to say. The other thing is that as it has developed in recent years, I think it's started to produce certain perverse effects. As it solidifies a national identity, it also becomes a way of excluding others. I have a project with the migration um, scholar Yasemin Yildiz where we're looking at the way that Immigrants and post-migrants in Germany, especially Turkish Germans, negotiate with German Holocaust memory culture. And they are faced with a kind of what we call a migrant double bind, where on the one hand, they're told, in order to be German, you have to remember the Holocaust. And on the other hand, they're told, this is not your history, it has nothing to do with you, and you're probably anti-Semitic anyway, so stay away from the Holocaust memory. And so it's become a kind of disciplinary tool. I think, by which majority society disciplines various kinds of minorities, especially those who are considered Muslim. And here's where it starts also to connect to the question of Israel. And Mbembe, though he's not German at all, got caught up, I think, in this very dynamic and becomes a kind of external victim of this same disciplining process that you see in relationship to German minorities and migrants where he's being told, you don't have a right to talk about the Holocaust, you're not talking about it the right way, therefore you are also an anti-Semite. 
there's so much to think about here. One thing that that I want us to dive into a little bit is this question of why all of these issues matter. I think, as you just put it a moment ago, the issue of comparison has become fundamental political and cultural issue of the day. Can you compare contemporary authoritarianism with 20th century fascism? And you know, I think that part of what we see in the book that we were discussing before is how these issues come to the fore in these debates, right? Again, I think with, with Mbembe and with what happened to the director of the, the Jewish Museum in Berlin, these are kind of, to some extent, one might say internal squabbles among academics and intellectuals, but it's also very much about the place of memory and the place of history in our present. You know, I think that in the case of Mbembe, part of what is interesting is that we see in the response to his comments, both from the German side and also in terms of the question of the persecution and how we understand the historical persecution of Jews is the way in which how people who are persecuted in one arena, this is what we talked about, you know, in terms of the implicated subject, how people who are persecuted in one arena, thinking about the history of the Holocaust and the broader history of anti-Semitism, are privileged in another. And the idea of the uniqueness of the Holocaust and of anti-Semitism is actually, I would argue, a kind of privilege, right? That that perspective is is a sense of the kind of pedestal upon which some people place hatred of Jews on this pedestal as like, so to speak, the longest hatred, right? Unique, cannot be compared to, et cetera. The sense of the Jews as being the ultimate victims, in a way, I would argue, actually is a sense of privilege. It's kind of a paradoxical way of thinking about it, but that's one way to do it. And the opposite side of that as well, or rather the flip side, is that for Germans also, the sense of themselves as historical perpetrators, the ultimate perpetrators, again, I would not call that uh, privilege by any means, right? But it's a sense of this of this dichotomy between the ultimate perpetrators and the ultimate victims that basically makes it impossible to engage with these questions of comparison. And I think that when we think about questions of implication, when we think about questions of the spectrum of these different things as opposed to being black and white, it brings us to this issue, which we see through the Mbembe controversy about you know, how can you compare these things? Who gets to make that comparison? And what does that tell us about people and society as a whole? No, I think that's really well said, and, and I agree entirely. At the end of my essay in response to the Mbembe affair, I draw on a phrase from Jean Améry, the Auschwitz survivor who wrote so powerfully during the 1960s about his experiences. And what he recommended to Germans at the time was self-mistrust. He said the proper attitude for Germans in relationship to their history is self-mistrust. And I think in some ways, this is precisely what the German model of coming to terms with the past has been built on. My worry is that they've turned <laughs> this self-mistrust into a new form of self-consolidation, right? A, a position of moral superiority. And I think in some ways, what I was recommending is we need to return to this category, this idea of self-mistrust. And Germans should, I think, put into question some of what they think they've learned about what it means to take responsibility in order to open themselves up toward greater responsibilities, to not just be thinking about the Holocaust, but also to think about the way they're implicated in a multiplicity of histories of violence and oppression, including what's happening in Israel-Palestine and what's happening globally and in terms of the legacies of colonialism as well. What I would say now also in response to your question is that probably we Jews could use a little self-mistrust as well. 
that we also need to complicate our position as what you say, ultimate victims. And I think especially those of us who are white, who are, who are located in the United States, but also in many other places around the world, we're in no position to see ourselves only through a victim frame. We really need ethically, politically, morally, spiritually probably as well, though that's not my terrain, to think of ourselves not just as victims, but also as implicated subjects, and to think about the way that we are, in fact, tied into various forms of structural racism, exploitation, oppression, and that we play roles, even if we're not perpetrators, as implicated subjects. And so here, I think the concept that I develop in the book of complex implication, I hope can be a really useful one, because what it says is it's not a zero-sum game which is one of my mantras from multidirectional memory, if we have a history of victimization, it doesn't mean that we can't also be aligned with perpetrators. And if we're aligned with perpetrators, it also doesn't mean we have to give up our memory of victimization. So I'm not saying that Jews should forget about the Holocaust. I'm saying we need to integrate our memory of the Holocaust and our memory of other examples of Jewish suffering into a more complicated picture in which we are also on the side of the beneficiaries and the privileged, in which we are also implicated subjects. And that complex grasp of implication, I think, is probably the best grounds for forging solidarity with other groups of victims in the present. In other words, I do think there's a powerful mix there of both seeing yourself as part of a tradition of suffering and victimization, and also in the current moment, as part of a structure of privilege that I hope at least can motivate people to new forms of what I've called differentiated solidarity, where they don't try to take the place of victims, but they try to situate themselves in proximity to current histories of violence. If I could ask one more thing to follow up on that, the question is, where do we go from there? As we think about this question of complicating our understanding of the history of the Jews on the one hand, right? You know, the history of injustice, broadly speaking. How do we translate or mobilize these ideas and these frameworks that you're talking about here, uh, about implication, multidirectional memory, so on and so forth? How do we mobilize them to serve a greater purpose, to fight against racism and structural inequality, essentially, in our own day? I think history does matter. I think history is illuminating. I think history does help us understand what appears to be a very chaotic world. I think I would go back to the two fundamental dimensions of comparison, which are the one hand making connections between di disparate events, on the other hand, making distinctions between disparate events. And I think that process of historicization the process of, of studying, teaching, learning history is all about both of those things that are involved in comparison. Seeing the connections to what came before, but also seeing the differences, right? How is what's happening now related to what happened in the 60s, in the kinds of revolts and rebellions that took place in the 60s? Sure, there are some connections, but there are also going to be some important distinctions. How are Trump's politics like fascist politics of the 30s and 40s? I think there are real connections. I think there are real distinctions. I think both of those need to be held together if we want to understand what's happening. To return to my point earlier, I think comparison is a fundamental cognitive process. I think it's essential also to thinking and acting politically. But we have to remember that, that making comparisons means both making connections and making distinctions and being able to see the novelty 
of our situation, because we are certainly living in a situation which is novel, as much as it might echo earlier, various earlier moments of history. Though I am very wary of directly bringing politics into the classroom, and I try not to do that, in fact, I do think that the very frameworks that we develop in our research and that we try to put into practice in the classroom are ones that can help produce the kinds of complicated consciousness that are necessary for making sense of the world in which we live and hopefully for trying to change that world. So I think teaching about the complexity of political and moral issues, of the complex intersections and interconnections between different histories of racism, different histories of violence, we don't have to make that into explicit propaganda. We have to try to get our students to think and to think in complex ways about the world in which they live and to see themselves as situated complexly in relationship to those histories. And we can hope that out of that, a kind of consciousness will emerge that will try to forge active forms of solidarity across groups that will resist forms of authoritarianism, even fascism that may be emerging around us. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much, Michael. This has been a really fascinating and important conversation. And thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thank you so much for your questions and for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. As I mentioned, we'll be back in the fall with more episodes of Jewish History Matters. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening.